1: Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Rough Draft. I'm your host, Reza Aslan. Our guest on the pod today is screenwriter Melissa Rosenberg. She's perhaps best known as the creator of Marvel's Jessica Jones series, and she also wrote every one of those Twilight movies that you pretend you don't love. One of the things that I love about Melissa is that she has really mastered the art of writing a strong, iconic female protagonist, which, listen, writers, is not the easiest thing to do. You know, it's very tricky terrain. You have to create a character that is pretty, not too pretty, smart, not too smart, you know, strong, not too strong, still gotta fall in love with a guy, of course, somewhere in the story. And yet, Melissa has managed, not just with Bella in the Twilight series, but with Jessica Jones to create female protagonists that are memorable, that are strong, that are powerful, and yet also at the same time, feminine. And one of the things that we talk about in our conversation is what is the process to creating that kind of female protagonist. She's also a woman in Hollywood, a obviously male-dominated industry, and she's got some incredible stories, both pre and post Me Too, about what that experience uh, has been like and how she's managed to overcome it and still succeed. Um, And, you know, maybe we'll even talk a little bit about her father, uh, Dr. Orgasm, which will make a lot more sense in the conversation itself. Without further ado, here is my conversation with screenwriter and TV writer, Melissa Rosenberg. I have wanted to meet you for so long. I'm such a fan of yours and I just love sort of your career trajectory. I wanna talk about so many different things, but first let's begin by just congratulating you on uh, a successful completion of Jessica Jones. Thank I mean, that must feel good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. Like, did it? Did Did you tell the story you wanted to tell? Did it end the way that you wanted to end? Yeah, three seasons. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it definitely got to tell the story I wanted to tell. Um, there's a world in which it could have gone on for seven, seven years. Words. Eight? Yeah. Nine. Well, I'm going to say <laughs> two, maybe. But um, I was actually ready to move on, and so it, it ended up working out really. Well, so yeah. I think three is, is a really complete story over the course of three seasons, yeah. I yeah. feel,
1: yeah. And you felt like you were able to close it out in a, in emotionally satisfying way. Really say what you wanted to say with that character.
2: Yeah, I, I felt that way. Yeah,
1: that's great. And so what's next for you now?
2: Uh, I have the great uh, privilege of adapting an Alice Hoffman novel, uh, the prequel to her novel, Practical Magic. No it's, kidding. Yeah, it's called Rules of Magic. Uh, and it's taking two characters from Practical Magic who are elderly and, they're in that, and setting it in the 1960s in New York when they're teenagers.
1: So adaptation seems to be kind of a thing for you. I mean, is that... Completely. The, well, did you slip into it or is that something that you've always kind of gravitated towards?
2: Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. the To me, the the original screenplay, the original... Mm-hmm storytelling is is the hardest possible thing coming out of thin air inventing and, and yeah. uh to me that's sort of the highest uh achievement and so my whole career i've been trying to have that you know striving toward that but where i found that i i if i shine anywhere it's going to be in playing in in other people's sandboxes and building the castles out with their their tools and their sand and you know sort of uh charlie kaufman versus Steve alien <laughs> and you know yeah. i think both have done extraordinary work uh i just sort of tend to not that i'm, I'm far cry from Steve alien but you know the the uh, getting is a way of collaborating with another writer uh, whether or not you meet that person or not as uh, a way of playing in there with with another writer's
1: storytelling. But doesn't it also come with some pitfalls, though? It I can. mean, especially when you're talking about Alice Hoffman, or as we talk about uh, in a little while, um, the Twilight um, saga. You know, those are books that people have a lot of emotional investment in. <laughs> and then somebody hands it over to you, and you can't just simply transfer what's on the page to a screen. That's not how adaptation works, obviously. Well, you tell know. that to a tween girl. Uh, yeah, no, exactly. Was what I was going to say, come yeah. At you with a pitchfork, <laughs> Right, map. right. That's not what I, how I imagined it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, what do you do with those pitfalls? I mean, do you just ignore it? Do you just simply say it's my story? I mean, there's a there's a a, a property that I have that there's a, a world that's already created and characters that I love, and obviously I'm going to follow the plot line and more or less. But I have to put this into three acts, and I have to make it interesting, and I have to make it you know ninety minutes. Right. Uh, or four and a half hours if it's a Marvel movie. Right. Um, you know, uh, like, th- do you do you relish that challenge or do you ever feel like, oh, I don't know if I wanna step into something like that again?
2: Both. <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, it's, well, there's something that comes along with a, a really uh, popular title, or in Jessica Jones' case, it was, you know, she was probably the lesser known of Marvel Superheroes, but you you, you get that Marvel title Mm -hmm. right on that front (laughs) title page, and you've got an audience. Yeah, and there is something to be said for a built-in audience because we, you know, we write so people can either read us or watch us, and uh, so many, too many, movies and television shows don't get seen and don't Mm -hmm. get the stories aren't heard Uh, because you know there's so much. Uh, So that was the beauty of of both. you know Jessica Jones and Twilight. That's really yeah. You know they show up. That's then you go to the other side. They show up with expectations. <laughs> uh, in the case of Jessica loud Jones,
1: expectations. loud <laughs>
2: expectations. In the case of Jessica Jones, be, again because she wasn't that that popular. Actually, it was kind of fantastic. Uh, and I was working with such an amazing annoying, right? original yeah. uh, original book by Brian Michael Bendis and Michael Gaydos. Mm-hmm. And it was I mean that book is that graphic novels that character's so rich. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So all I had to do was stay true to the character, which is why I wanted to do it in the first place, is to write that character, and I think fans and, and uh, you know, the audience really could root yeah. for it.
1: It worked out well. It worked out well. <laughs> for
2: me it did, I'm like really happy. For Twilight, the, what I really learned over the course of doing five of those guys is, it's, if, you, if you take the audience on the same emotional journey, that, you take, that the book takes them on. I feel like, in, in my mind, that's, the, that's mm-hmm. the way to appease the audience. Now, there's a whole slew of, you know, girls out there on the internet and I'm happy to point out all the ways in which I didn't yeah. satisfy them at all. <laughs> uh, but that was my objective, was right. to, to just tell the story. Uh, what is their emotional arc? Finding the, the plot points that move that forward, yeah. move those characters forward. Right and then either filling in or, uh, you know, editing, combining, condensing.
1: Well, I want to talk a lot more about, about this, um, but I want to talk about um, your childhood a little bit. You uh, grew up in Marin, right, okay. in Marin County, uh, to hippie parents, right? I...
2: Well, you know, it's funny, they, they were sort of between straightforward hippies and the, they're more me generation, you know, the, mm. the Mippies. 70s. Mippies, I assume yeah. they're called. Uh, so, yeah, so they were all kind of coming into puberty at the same time we were, and it was a very, um, it was a rocky world, very unsettled, and Mm -hmm. very, not particularly safe place to grow up. How so? How was it not safe? Um, they were really involved in their own lives, and they were divorced and kind of went off and did their thing, and there was four of us kids, and we're kind of, you know, uh, raised by wolves, if you will, and, you know, that's... There's a there's some there's a lot you can you get from that, which is a freedom to, and we very much encourage even by them to, to really find who we were, who what our voice was, and, mm-hmm. and to really be take risks uh, and and not ever settle for, um, you know the the, uh, the usual.
1: Did you shuttle back and forth between yeah. the two parents?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Dad had his groove pad on, you know, houseboat in Sausalito. I mean.
1: <laughs> So let's talk about Dad for a minute. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if people here know about Jack Lee Rosenberg. He's a uh, quite an accomplished uh, psychotherapist. I guess is that what we would say. Um, famous for a lot of work. Uh, my favorite book of his, of course, is Total Orgasm, which uh, also, by the way, happens to be my wife's nickname for me. Um, and uh, I just think you know, I, like my. I, this sounds weird, but like you know, as I'm sitting here thinking about you and your life, and I'm wondering, like, what what is it like to be the child of a father uh, who writes "Total Orgasm"? The, the daughter, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. the daughter of Mr. Tio.
1: That's yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. Um,
1: he did a lot of other things, by the way. I should he mention did, he is very much into mind, body, and you know. Yeah, the, the sexuality yeah.
2: was a big part of his sure. work. Sure. Uh, you know, it's. I was coming into my own sexuality at the same time. So it was pretty, talk about unsafe in a way, Uh, you know. It was, uh, there was no very, boundaries were very unclear. So it was, it was an interesting time to be uh, a teenager.
1: Do you think it it, it affected um, not just how you see the world, obviously, but also how you construct worlds in your writing?
2: yeah in both positively uh, you know in and negatively in some ways but in a positive way of I didn't grow up in a traditional home in a traditional world and so uh, if I'm trying to write a traditional world this is a big problem I got to get someone in there who actually had you know
3: uh-huh.
2: uh, there's a point in yeah. there's one point in my life I was uh, just starting out here and I was I was working in an office um and the guy next to me was saying, uh, you know, his his wife had just had a, a baby, and her her mom went and left a chicken for her in the fridge. And I was like, people, moms do that, you know? There's a chicken. And it occurred. It was like this kind of odd moment <laughs> of like, wow, that's what it would be like to have, you know, parents who actually. I mean, it seems, you know, but this was not something my. This is actually
1: did. really fascinating, and I never really realized it until this moment, which is that there is always that undercurrent of danger is the wrong word because obviously you're talking about people who are hanging out with like vampires and werewolves. That seems to be a little dangerous and like serial killers and you know uh, superheroes. Uh, But what I mean is um, a lack of security. Hmm. Does that make sense? Like this undercurrent in which your characters, your protagonists especially, is never... Stable exactly never secure exactly are you drawn to those kinds of stories because of the kind of childhood that you had I think maybe I you know
2: it's a, it's a character that I know it's a it's a if I were asked to write the story of the the really stable character who went off into the world and, and became unstable I, I wouldn't know how to do right. that yeah but a person who comes from an M safe world who feels unstable and insecure and then f- makes their own, f- comes into their courage, finds their own uh, voice. That to me is, that's my favorite theme. That's my mm-hmm. favorite mm-hmm. Uh, character and always trying to find that.
1: So uh, you graduate from high school. And yeah. then uh, you go off to be a dancer in I guess New Jersey? Yeah, like I was so?
2: working, actually I was working with a little theater and dance company. We were initially mm-hmm. uh, in, in New Jersey and then moved up to New York. It was kind of a, <laughs> it was a weird little theater and dance company. It was. Led by a sort of a shaman, a woman.
1: <laughs> okay. Uh, I like this already. Not, <laughs> uh huh.
2: Not American Indian, but she. Uh, we, it was like this. We did theater and dance, improv theater and dance, in a sort of therapy, theater and dance therapy.
1: Yeah, and you're you're sure it wasn't a cult.
2: I'm pretty sure. So like now that you're thinking
1: about it, you're like, wait a second. I think
2: some people make it difficult.
1: Uh,
2: but I didn't have to do
1: anything.
2: Uh, no, all I had to do was like actually perform and mm. um, you know play music. And, and we did a lot of gr- workshops and teaching all around. So it was an introduction to me of, to theater in a sort of odd way. Coming from where I come from, it was perfectly normal. You know, My, my father taught at, at Esalen and Big Sur for right. up until he died.
1: Um, and then, so okay, this is I'm gonna just sort of admit something here because this question is a little bit awkward for me. Uh, I like to think of myself as a as woke
2: i, don't know. I me too I' sort, sort of, of I mean, sort of woke
1: semi woke. Uh, but um my one of our producers mentioned that the way that you paid for that was by and this is how it was put to me working the strip club circuit, and I was like. <laughs> What, like, as a, like, serving drinks? I don't know, what is that? <laughs> Cleaning the floors? Can I ask about that without being that guy? Can I ask about, Can I? is that okay? Absolutely. All right. I'm pretty out about it. We're talking about, um, women, we're talking about feminism. I don't want to, you know. No, I,
2: you know, it's, um, again, another real education in, in life. And um, it was... I'm actually not not even close to the first one, first screenwriter or television writer who has that background. I mean, oh, you know, Diablo not. came out about it. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, my yeah. partner on Jessica Jones, Ryle Tucker, is very open about it. And um, this is a way in which women can can make money. Mm. And there were some other people in this theater and dance company that were doing that. And I was like, sure. But it was so lame because, you know, I was just, I would go walk the stage, and you're talking about like really, you know, kind of mm-hmm. gritty bars in New Jersey, these guys are coming in for lunch for a, you know, a couple of six beers, and... and the uh, guy at
1: lunch, that's honestly the most depressing thing, right? The guy oh, is like, I've got a 45-minute lunch break. Where's the nearest strip club? Yeah,
2: <laughs> seriously. And I was not, you know, clearly not the big star to go on Friday or Saturday night, although I did those two, but, um, and...
1: You were doing the Tuesday afternoon. I was doing uh, the, tw- the
2: shift, the morning mm-hmm. shift, which is very sad. But um, I was like, you know, into doing my modern dance. And I was just, <laughs> and I'd turn on something, I like really get into the music, like this thing,
1: and, you know. <laughs> and uh,
2: stop, I look up and they'd be like, What is happening? What? So uh, I was not... uh, I didn't make as much money as a lot of people (laughs) have made in that profession.
1: No, Look, I ask these questions honestly because when I look at Jessica Jones, one of the most striking aspects of it is how frankly it deals with sex and female sexuality, but then at the same time... It refuses to sexualize uh, Jessica or or Trisha. It refuses to sexualize really any of the female characters, but it does have sex and there's you know sexualities in it. Um, and I'm just curious how much of that, which is a is a unique trait in a in a show like that, how much of that um, has to do with growing up with. Uh, Doctor Total Orgasm, and <laughs> and Dad. then paying. Pay, Sorry, <laughs> yes, Mr. I apologize, Doctor <laughs> Rosenberg. Um, and and then also your experiences, you know, in, in in the strip club. I mean, how much of that uh, influenced how you tackle um, issues of sexuality when you're sure. dealing with these incredibly strong, empowered women?
2: What well, was a really interesting process to? It was, it was, I was very young when I was doing it, and so. Uh, and, and there was a, a very sort of... It, it took a long time and a lot of different... ...wokes <laughs> <laughs> along the process. Mm-hmm. And um, it was interesting. My my partner on season two of Jessica Jones, Ryle Tucker, who I mentioned before, mm-hmm. she, she and I have a very, very similar background. and. I would come to it where I'd have a character like Trish, for instance, who uh, in her youth was a child star and who just kind of segued into drugs, alcohol and sex mm-hmm. and just kind of only saw herself as valuable because of that. Right. Uh, and I was really coming from kind of a, a dark, slightly judgmental place. And Ray had completely, Rayel is her name, I call her Ray, had a completely different take on it. She's like, well, you know, we don't want, this isn't about shaming women with their sexuality. We want them to embrace their sexuality and, uh, you know. And on their so, own terms. So it was, it's always been this, this sort of uh, battle for me internally in terms of at what point does someone who owns their sexuality and who is, is uh, you know, free in that regard tip over into someone who uh, feels that the only thing they have of value is that. Mm -hmm. And it was a very conscious choice with Jessica, just out of sheer boredom with other, having been a TV viewer (laughs) for many, many years. Every time you have a any time you have any kind of a crime show or some sort of detective, it is without a doubt if she's a woman there's going to be a time where she goes undercover in a tight little black dress and, and you know every <laughs> single <Yeah>. person right <laughs> and if it's not her someone else has to go undercover as the hooker or whatever and i was like one it's just simply not jessica's character to do that she just in a million years wouldn't do that she just gonna break someone's face um and two is just sort of like well that's not the story we're telling you know this is this is not is a very very conscious choice not to do that
1: you know, as you were talking about that, I was thinking, that also applies really well in the way in which the show dealt with sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, rape was a was a conversation that happened a lot throughout that first season, but you never you never saw the the action itself. What you saw was the aftermath, mm-hmm. right? You saw characters dealing with the aftermath of that. And then, obviously, Am I ruining this show for people who have never seen it? Too bad. Too bad. bad. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Fuck you guys. Too late. Too late. Um, But uh, the fact that um, the 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 sexual violence came through this incredibly complex supernatural uh, experience of having um, someone control her mind and control her will, and there were these constant conversations about but did you want it or did you not want it? Mm. I felt like what, we were, what I was witnessing was um, the kinds of conversations that you see on college campuses or in the media, but wrapped up in this kind of science fiction fantasy version of that. How cognizant were you guys in the room when you were dealing with that particular storyline of um, the way in which you were treating issues of Rape and the survival of sexual violence, without necessarily doing what what you were talking about earlier, right? Those those the, the CBS procedural, right? right, where it's like every fucking episode is about a rape or some you know terrible yeah, thing that happens to a woman. Yeah, the first is
2: open on a half naked woman with her underwear around her ankle.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, every yeah.
2: single yeah.
1: One. Nine p.m. on a Sunday. Thank you.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's yeah. crazy.
1: But just don't swear. Yeah. Yeah. So as long as you don't swear, it's fine.
2: Yeah, you can have. Yeah. you can gut people, and yeah, yeah.
1: you can do whatever uh, you want.
2: Sidebar: Dexter at one point during the writer's strike went from Showtime and aired on CBS, and remember. everyone was like, oh, "Can you do that? Can you put?" it? And I was like, "That is so much more tame than. We any- <laughs> yeah. just take out the language. Yeah. it's so much more tame than anything Absolutely. on like C- Absolutely. CSI or whatever they are. Oh like, my goodness." Anyway, um, I I what took
1: we you off track. Uh, oh, the yeah. question of yeah, sexual violence and the way that you guys dealt with it.
2: You know, this was the the character of Jessica Jones that came from the Alias comic book uh, that Brian Michael Bendis wrote was someone who who there's like one issue in which she'd had this, this sort of experience with the Purple Man or Kilgrave, and she wasn't even actually raped. Oddly, she was forced to watch rape, mm. and I, we were just like, okay, well bypass that and just go with, you know, really making it visceral to her. And so that's what we started with, with that storyline. And we just came at it from a point of view of character, you know. If you're that character, if you're Jessica, what are you, what are you genuinely going through? What is the authentic experience? What is your authentic journey? And. You know, my, everyone in that room was a feminist. And, and so we're all cognizant of, you know, if we're tipping over the edge and mm-hmm. going to places that felt uh, not right. But we weren't paying attention to it as an issue. We weren't paying attention to any, we, we weren't t- kind of trying to make a statement. It was before the whole Me Too thing yeah. happened. In fact, we came out at the same time as Me Too, we were like, I was going. Oh, this is incredible that you foresaw this. Like, well, not really, because <laughs> it's you. been happening for centuries and wow. thousands of years. Whatever. But um, yeah, so we never approached it from from the point of view of let's tackle an mm-hmm. issue. It was really what Story, is she character. character? Story yeah. character. She's yeah. what is she? What would she be going through here? Sure. What's her experience? So it was. And then to turn around when it came out and everyone was writing these wonderful think pieces on what an incredibly political statement it was and on domestic violence and all this stuff. And I was like, well, yeah, we, we totally were <laughs> trying to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Tiny. <Time>. Yes. <laughs> uh, but it was also the thing I was just... Yeah. Uh, I felt like if it all ended at that moment, it would be fine because I'd, I'd achieved... I'd, I'd contributed to the conversation and, you know, my entire career, for all of us, you know, our entire career, did we move anything for, did we contribute mm-hmm. to the conversation and to that we had uh, was just humbling yeah. and, and, I mean, you have that experience all the time.
1: I mostly <laughs> piss people off. That's, I don't, I don't well, move anyone. I move people towards anger. Um, well, you know what? That's
2: <laughs> the most valuable thing sometimes. That...
1: Um, so, okay, so let's go back to, to childhood. So you uh, you tried the dancing thing for a while and then yeah. how did dancing become writing? Is oh and good a,
2: enough I think it's pretty much I because oh, yeah, yeah. you know, one of the things where I had always written and always loved to write and as a kid you know grabbing my mom's typewriter to write the great novel great American novel and you know that kind of thing but I had uh, I wanted to be a choreographer and I was very um, I loved dance and I want and I went to uh, undergrad at Bennington in Vermont and studied choreography and it was pretty clear by the time I got to the end of it, it was really clear that I didn't think I was ever a good enough dancer Or even choreographer to to really shine to really Mm yeah I I would be I would be good I would have been good
1: but you wanted to be great
2: yeah you want to kind of feel all those sparks going Mm -hmm. and and there were so many other things I was interested in uh, you know as like writing and politics and various things and so I came out to L.A. and discovered that television and film was written.
1: Yeah, it's weird, right?
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, didn't know.
1: We should tell the studios too. Yeah, we should. Yeah, there's actually words first.
2: First are yeah. words, um, and once I kind of, you know because you, you think many many not these days not so much because the showrunner and In writing nowadays, is very yeah, much exactly, you know yeah. here we are talking and so someone's going oh. Wow, that was written. <laughs> um, but I you know, didn't really have a concept of that and well, um,
1: around when was this? So this just was
2: just a... year-wise or age-wise? Yeah,
1: like decade-wise. 80s, mid 80s, okay. Yeah, mid 80
2: through 90. Uh, 86 through 90, I was sort of, you know, working as assistants to producers mm-hmm. and writers and such and saw what they did and you know, was the, saw that you know, worked with the two writers who just lied on a couch and threw pencils at the ceiling tiles went that's a great oh, that job! Uh, uh, not realizing clear, how hard it is. Just to
1: be clear, two male writers yes, lying absolutely. on the ground throwing pencils at yes. the ceiling. So wasn't that just a little bit of, a, of an obstacle? Did you notice that? Did you notice that everyone around you had a penis?
2: Well, I didn't know. I didn't th- <laughs> try not to, to think about that. Uh, <laughs> although sometimes that was, you know, they made that impossible. But, yeah. um, y- you know, I worked for a female producer by the name of Bonnie Doerr uh who's passed away since then but um she was very much a part of women in film and um so i had i was working for the example of someone who was in the industry and who who made her bones and got to do what she wanted mm. she to do and i'd had there were other examples out there yeah. few and far between but you know there was winnie holstman who was doing my so-called life and all the and, and who i was just. Mm you know, idolized, and there's a few uh, around. And, uh, but really was it just about this? I mean, I was so obsessed with storytelling. I was so hungry to do that that I didn't give it a lot of thought. You know, I just kind of barreled in. And, uh, you know.
1: But I wonder, like, you must have had, in in those days especially, uh, some pretty uncomfortable experiences in those writer rooms. Uh, you know, having to just kind of deal with the, I like, by the way, I love how I'm talking about this like it's in the past. I was about to say, (laughs) those days in which you had to deal with the male dominated culture of Hollywood. Remember those days?
2: Well, that's my show now. So
1: anyway, exactly. Now you run the shit. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But I'm curious. Back then, like, what what that experience was like. I mean, did you feel like I'm just gonna have to just kind of eat this for now because what am I gonna do? You know, complain.
2: Yeah, it was not quite so conscious as that. It was just kind of you know, plowing through, trying to trying to do things. And you know, I got fired a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I've got fired a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, either in. You know, some of the times I would I would blame it on well they just don't like women you know and I was like in retrospect no I just wasn't very good on the show <laughs> yeah. um, and in some cases it was just yeah. you know them us not blending and my not understanding uh, the culture uh, so you know there was many different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I forgot the question now. <laughs> I, I kind of went, I just like went back. It was
1: just PTSD. generally how shitty men in writer's room are. It wasn't even not a question. It was just like a statement.
2: It's so not it's yeah. not, not true at all. Uh, I think, you know, I, I learned the most from so many wonderful mm. men. I've had so many great relationships, friendships, par- creative partnerships with men. I've got this couple of them over there who are in our <laughs> writer's room to, right now. Uh, it's so, it's, it's really been my honor the, you know uh, the, there's there is a, a maleness that you know it, it, when they're dominating the room you just have to kind of adjust and i never really figured out how to adjust you know mm-hmm. it was like well sh- you know should i just be a fly on the wall or should i be like one of the guys yeah. or should i defend my gender and i never figured it out i've tried all three and <laughs> it was it like actually, the only yeah. way the only way to get worked out is to be the
1: boss that's what I was just gonna say. I was like, I got a fourth option. Why don't I just run this shit myself?
2: <laughs> exactly.
1: And that's what happened. So yeah. I mean, you had sort it took of, a oh, long it took, time. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to make light of the fact that you worked your ass off there, but you just had sort of back-to-back successes, obviously with Dexter, one of the great shows, uh, uh, a, a show that. Uh, um, made it so that my wife couldn't sleep for months and months. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, it's your fault. Um, and and then Step Up, you did a, a movie about dancing. That must have felt good.
2: That was... What was so amazing about that is my very first job in Hollywood was I'd gotten hired to rewrite a, uh, a dance movie My Paramount. And the reason I got hired was because of my dance background. And so I had had this painful, like having to, you know, give up my dream of being a choreographer, <laughs> yeah. but then the first job I ever got was because I had a dance background. Now that movie never got made, but 12 years later, I got Step Up, and so my first movie that ever got made was because I was a dancer. Right. And I met with Ann Fletcher, who was also a dancer, she was the director, and we just spoke the same language. and. You know, so it, it, it all comes around. So what I love about what we do
1: yeah.
2: is there's no wasted time. Yeah. Every yeah. experience.
3: Right.
1: goes it all, on to the yeah, I mean, I mean cr- the creative process starts here. Yeah. And so this is what you have to develop, right? Yeah. yeah. So from there, you're given uh, this tiny movie about this book that no one's ever heard of before called Twilight. Like, what happened there? It and was, by the way, that's amazing enough, but you'd mentioned this earlier, and I think it just kind of got lost a little bit. You wrote all five Twilight movies, which I don't think people understand how unusual that is. That that doesn't happen in in film, you know. Uh, I mean, that's to write the entirety of a, an a, an epic saga like that is. Extraordinary. So well done, first oh, of all. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that just doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. You like bringing a new writer every time, you know? Yeah. It's not like the same person wrote every Harry Potter movie. That's uh, not how it works. Yeah, all but one. Wait, is that right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, then let's just uh, d- edit out this entire. <laughs> let's just let's forget this entire conversation. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, tell us about that. How did that come to you?
2: Uh, well, I had done Step Up and Summit was the studio, mm. and we had a really just a great experience together. And it was a really good partnership, particularly with, uh, with Eric Feig, who was running, was the head of the yep. development. And, great guy. and I don't remember his title, probably president, I think was his title at that point. Um, and it was just a really good creative mm. uh, partnership. So a few months went by, they offered me Step Up 2, and they said it was gonna go, it's just a straight to video thing, and I'm like, <laughs> I kind of already. It's not like it's a continuing storyline. I'm right. already. I'm not going to write it better the second time. And <laughs> straight to video. I don't know. Didn't mention that. Oh, later become a yeah, actual release, like wide release. Nineteen wide movies. Release. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was okay yeah. because then I thought they were really mad, and I was like, oh shit, I just. Fucked up my entire relationship (laughs) with them. I'm never working this town again. But then a few months went by, and Eric called me. He's like, well, how do you feel about teens and vampires? And I was like, I... I love love both. (laughs) I said, I love it because, I mean, I think one of the great, great series of all time is Buffy.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, one of the great, great series. Yes. And uh, I don't mean to be uh, crass. Twilight's not Buffy. No, I mean, were not. you familiar with the books? No, I okay, wasn't. So mom, but all I heard was *Twins of Vampires*, okay,
2: and I'm yeah. like, "Cool." Yeah yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
2: Um, and I happened to be at a friend's house on that precise night, and night he had the book, and so I went home and read it. And I was like, you know, regardless of how you feel about the writing in, in the book, Stephanie Meyer is an amazing storyteller. Mm-hmm. You know, she she has a mythology of the of her world that is so in, intricately thought up. You know, when I was writing these things, I could call her and I say, well, what, what color wolf is, you know, blah-de-blah, and she'd, well, he's brown, and then the other guy's gray with a little brown paws, mm-hmm. and then you'd say, well, what, what about this Volturi, third Volturi on the left? <laughs> well, that vampire, 18, 800 years ago, had yogurt with his granola, or whatever it is. <laughs> right. I mean, she had, so, it was just a, talk about a sandbox huh. to play in. Um, and I loved the mythology. So um, it was just a, a really good, and again, I was, that was Eric Feig and, and the team over at Summit. And, you know, it was just a really good
1: marriage. Did you have any idea what you were stepping no, into? No, I
2: I I heard that that the book had been kind of popular. Yeah. there was like apparently some people online, liked it. I guess there's some online activity. Was some, yeah, and I was like, oh, I'll go look at it. I, I got somewhat
1: interested, in <laughs> it. yeah, uh
2: huh. I went onto yeah. like some website and I saw just a hint of what it was, or you know, because it was scary, and I just didn't want to think about that, so um, I didn't. Look at anything on the web. I didn't read any of the fo- the following books. I was just I want to immerse myself in this book and mm-hmm. in this moment with my myself and and collaborating, you know, just on the page with Stephanie and um, it and then it turned out to what it was. It was, mind <laughs> wild, right? <laughs> the 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 most significant thing I remember uh, moment was uh, Twilight had not yet come out, and. But they're taking clips of it down to Comic Con, Mm. and they had Hall H, which is the big, you know, Mondo huge hall. And I walked in, and there were—I don't know how many people that hall holds, but like I would say five, six thousand, something like that, right? I walked into five or six thousand, like women and girls. Yeah. And. I was looking around going, oh fuck. I <laughs> I changed that scene. It's different than it was in the book. Oh, nobody can do they come out? Yeah. And so I kind of was sneaking I had a seat up by with the producers in the audience and I you know I was walking down and this little girl comes up she's like 12 or something she wants me to sign her book and I'm like I she's like I know who you are. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> They're gonna come after my daughters. I was having a freaking yeah. anxiety attack. I was sorry.
1: It's not. I mean, those those girls are very serious about that. Really book. serious. Really serious.
2: And then it, when the cast, uh, Stephanie and uh, Catherine Hardwicke, who directed the the first movie, and the cast came out, it was so extraordinary because the no
1: one knew who they were. <laughs> oh All right, they, that's they true. knew at the time. They were basically unknown actors. The movie yeah. hadn't even
2: been out, yeah. but they were playing these people, the audience's favorite characters. And they walked out, and there was this screaming, swell. I mean, you know, the Beatles on a Sullivan, nothing on what was going here, you know. <laughs> and you could see the energy and the yell just kind of like rebound off the actors. They come kind of step back with this sort of, "Holy shit, this is." And and that was the moment that their lives changed. I mean, I don't know. I didn't ask yeah. them, but it seemed like. That was the moment they, they yeah. and I think, you know, Kristen Stewart and, and uh, Rob Pattinson, they didn't seem to know how to respond. But that was when Taylor Lautner, and, dude, he was so comfortable with the publicity. And he just got in there, <laughs> was telling jokes and stuff. and
1: Took his shirt off. That, well, that was really all I had
2: to do. Yeah. But, you know, again, no one knew who these kids were. and uh, I love um, the
1: fact that you're sitting there with like 6,000 screaming te- tweens, well, and, women too.
2: It was, it was not women. just it was like half and half.
1: True. Hey, no, I don't. I don't mean to make fun of this. I mean no, no, absolutely. But I love how you know you're in this room with like five thousand screaming people, and you think to yourself, "I'm going to do four more of these."
2: I didn't know that <laughs> at that time. No, actually, I did. I was already writing. They had hired me to write two and three before we even released the first wow. movie. So, and then the fourth and fifth one were based on this one book, you know, the last book, and I didn't know at that time if I was gonna do four and five. Because the fourth book in the series, Breaking Dawn, is is such a, an, uh, there's a very anti-choice message in it. Mm. Uh, which, you know, that is Stephanie's point of view and, and I respect that, mm-hmm. that's fine. It's her book, her story. But I I couldn't write that story. I, I, I was, that I couldn't do. and. So I was like, and I didn't know my I didn't know how to tell this story any other way. This is when uh, um, Bella is miraculously impregnated, and in the book, she does not see it. As, she does not see herself as having a choice. This baby simply must be born. And so I, it wasn't until I I was talking to my sister-in-law, who's a um, a former ACLU feminist attorney, who had read the books oddly, and she said, you know the way in, isn't it that deciding to have a child is a choice? Mm -hmm. And having not made that choice of my own, I'm child-free, you know, I was like, that was a revelation to me. It seems very simple at the time, you know. I'm looking back and going, wait a minute, that's right. She's making a choice to have that child. And it didn't violate Stephanie's uh, point of view but it also validated my own. So it was, you know, that was always kind of the balance that I was writing mm-hmm. with, with the Twilight stuff, was, was, you know, in the book, Bella's a very passive girl. She's, she's, and you can do that in a novel. You can have characters that are passive and reactive and can't do that in a movie.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: so it was all about kind of sh- shifting Bella into someone who is driving the story. And she is in reality, I mean, in, re- in the books, all the storytelling happens because Bella wants to have sex with Edward. <laughs> it really boils down to exactly that. That's pretty much it. Yeah. It is. It is it. Bella wants to have sex with Edward, and that's why she does every so-and-so's life is in danger. Whoever gets murdered, and you know more vampires come. <laughs> As long as she gets sex with <laughs> so it was kind of uh, you know it was really nice to to like I, in the end I ended up being able to find my way into four and Stephanie and I had a really great ma- meeting of the minds and...
1: so you talking about this though it brings up something very interesting because at the same time that you're having this ridiculous experience of this sort of global it was crazy. phenomenon it yeah it's just been madness I can't even I can't even imagine it um, you're also dealing with uh, this backlash th- this sort of bella hatred can i put it that way sure. i mean people fucking hate her <laughs> yeah what is that all about like i actually we were talking about this earlier that there was a a harvard professor who actually um, coined this idea of uh big twilight bigotry is that what it the was bigotry
2: like? of hating twilight the
1: bigotry of hating twilight I think yeah it really it's was like called. i mean the hatred is so extreme that it's a form of bigotry, apparently. Well, the according the way to she a talked professor.
2: about it, yeah, the way she talked about it was, I mean, it was like you have. There are a lot of bad movies. Yeah, you know, people just don't like a movie. Like you know, there was a, a Transformer somewhere down that you know, was coming out around the same time as us. <laughs> yeah. You know, okay, I maybe mean, it's not. That's and,
1: good and, writing, right there. There you go. <laughs> um,
2: but you know, it wasn't a great movie. People just said, yeah, kind of not a great movie, you know. But with Twilight. It because I, this is my theory and was hers as well because it is about a a girl. It's about love. It is unapologetically mm-hmm. about love, uh, which is typically seen as a chick flick. It was deserving of contempt, and the vitriol with, with which the critics different not not all the critics yeah. uh, you know but and they would have these like sixty year old white guys reviewing it, it's like, dude, you're not the audience.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, why yeah. are... That's a good point. And
2: there's been a yeah. lot of talk currently about critics and, you know, why are, why are this... Why is this person reviewing that? Yeah, and,
1: right. You know,
2: so that conversation, I, know, I noticed, has been happening a lot in the... Uh, it's right amazing.
1: Now. So I, I actually, uh, just for fun, collected some of the critiques. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> and by the way, this, I should, I should mention, this is these are critiques of Bella in the book. Yes, Which I think you've said is yeah. a little bit, little bit different, a little more passive, but nevertheless, the same character. And these are august institutions, okay? So Publishers Weekly said about Bella, it's almost impossible to identify with her. Kirkus said that Bella's personality was, quote, flat and obsessive. <laughs> Salon wrote of both Edward and Bella, quote, neither of them has much personality to speak of. National Review called Bella insufferably vain. Mm. And then I love this one. Can't argue with that one. <laughs> <laughs> I love this one. This is uh, the Washington Post. They said, uh, and they're talking about uh, the, the problem that they have with, with Bella as a character. The overall effect is a weird infantilization that has repellent overtones to an adult reader and hardly seems like an admirable model. admirable model to foist upon our daughters or sons. Mm.
2: Well, that's the book, right? That's the book. Yeah, that yeah. got a lot of flack. Um, I had nothing to do with the book. <laughs> <laughs> I think I approached the book with not a dissimilar feeling. I mean, I was mm. I was worried about the character. Um, I did. I, I, I wanted to dig deeper into it. And I don't think I think that everything that I brought forward for her in terms of being proactive and driving a scene and go, you know, being a Strong, directed, young woman. I, I feel like it was all buried in the character, and I just chose to parse away the all the other stuff. Mm. Uh, that's how I see it. Uh, mm. And you know, the people who there are the people who have seen the movie who who understand. Like I was again down at Comic Con, another one, and uh, this young woman came up to me and saw this. She said, "I saw what you did there. I saw what you did." It's mm. like. So, someone did. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I mean, I was yeah. just constantly writing that line of "this is Stephanie's story, this is her world," and I don't have any need or desire to to attack that. Uh, but my world has to exist at the same time, and you know, my my uh, own ethics and and beliefs have to mm. have to be able to exist in the same world. So it was, um, you know. We we managed a bipartisan
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> screenplay, I, I like to think.
1: hey there everyone it's reza i'm sorry for the interruption i just wanted to pop in and say that if you're enjoying this episode well then you're in luck my friends because rough draft is also a tv show and you can watch it all right now along with topics other original series and exclusive programming from around the world you can check it out for free on the apple tv app which is already on your favorite devices with apple tv you can watch topic at home or on the go with offline viewing And you can even share your subscription with up to six family members with family sharing, which is what I do because I have a gigantic family. Go to apple.co slash topic to start your seven-day free trial now. That's apple.co slash topic.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.
1: This is actually a perfect bridge into a conversation about your craft. So let's yeah. talk about craft for, sure. for a moment. Um, you've become very well known for um, being able to construct these enormously complex female protagonists, which um, it is a very difficult thing to do because obviously, I don't need to tell you this, I don't need to tell anyone this, but we treat female protagonists far differently than we treat male protagonists. Male to protagonists can have any flaw that they want to, you know, I mean, we actually celebrate those flaws. I mean, we're kind of over the anti-hero a little bit, but nevertheless, um, you know, we look at characters who have no redeeming qualities whatsoever, and we're like, I love that guy. <laughs> um, but then you construct a female protagonist, and suddenly you're walking this knife edge. Suddenly yeah. it's like she's gotta be you know, as I, I was talking about this at the, at the top of the show, she's got to be just, uh, you know, just smart enough. Not too smart. You don't want to make her too smart, but you don't want to make her dumb. You just want to make her just smart enough. You want to make her beautiful, not too beautiful. You want to make her vulnerable, but too vulnerable is not good enough, but not vulnerable enough that she's just a bitch. And Yeah. Like, it's such a minefield to walk, and yet, you know, you've managed to construct, I think, two... Uh, female protagonists that are, are gonna the, the t- stand the test of time, that you know, that that people actually do, yeah, let's knock I on something us. and so some, <laughs> um, that I think people look to in, in many ways as, as a model for how to do this. So, I guess all of this is to say, What is the trick? Tell me, what, how do you do this? How do you make, um, a strong but feminine female? protagonist does she have to be feminine does she i guess not i mean i don't know that was weird (laughs) that i said that right this is it
2: there are people both men and women who are more feminine and yeah you know and not um what's the trick don't write her as a woman that's not her defining characteristic when you write a man do you say i'm writing this man no no
1: that's so true when you're
2: writing a black man you say i'm writing a black man Right. When you're writing a woman, you say you're writing a female character. Mm-hmm. When you're we- writing a white guy, you just say his name is Bob. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's like you. Def- I think that has been the the, uh, the the struggle that characters have have dealt with and actors mm. trying to play them is that everyone but the white guy is defined by their gender or their race or their orientation. And so that everything that comes out of their mouth is about that. That's not a character, you know? So if you strip away, a female character is certainly informed by her gender and an African-American character is informed by his race and so on. But that is not a character. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, she's the woman or she's the wife Mm
3: -hmm.
2: or she's the, you know, sassy cop, you know? so it's that's how i've approached it and um it's been a really that's been very important
1: that's yeah. actually really really good advice um to sort of just treat it as any character it's and a not character. an archetype yes right um, it's a
2: character
1: what would you what would you so when you look at these sort of the two main sort of female protagonists that you're best known for at least up till now who knows what happens next um what do you think is the, the sort of the similarities and the differences between Bella and Jessica Jones? Like, how, how, do, you, how do you see them in your mind? How do, you, how do you differentiate them as characters, not according to their gender, obviously, but just uh, as characters? And what do you think is the through line between them?
2: Well, I mean, the difference is, one, Jessica's funny. <laughs> so you know mm-hmm. and Kristen Ritter can dri- d- deliver a dry line like nobody's yeah, business. Awesome. I know she's amazing um, not as much Kristen Stewart oh they're both named Christians
1: oh <laughs>
2: there's a the through line weird I just
1: <laughs> thought of that yeah <laughs>
2: um, and uh, you know I think Jessica's a much more flawed character and really fun to write for that reason you know I think that was part of the trick with with Bella, was finding, getting to those flaws. And I think that her, obs- she is somewhat obsessive, again, she wants Edward, she wants sex with Edward. And there's a, there is there is an element of selfishness to her, and even though she's constantly worried mm-hmm. of, oh, I made all this happen, it's all my fault, I'm like, yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah it is. Um, she that's her flaw is this sort of uh obsessive single-mindedness jessica is just is really damaged she's a really damaged character mm. you know and, and so is bell actually i mean she comes from a really you know a, you know broken family and and a lot of what drives her toward edward is it's a need for connected connection mm-hmm. and Jessica's, you know, she's just she. The, the thing about Jessica, here's here's the other thing I learned about uh, writing a female character. Sidebar. It's changed a lot, female writing female characters. I mean, there was uh, a, the very first series I ever show ran and created was this series called Red Widow for ABC, and the it, it had eight episodes and out, and it's still to this day one of my favorite eight episodes of anything you know that I've ever done but it it never it just no one tuned in and i think part of that was marketing and advertising the other (laughs) part of it was that the lead character was a mother who was basically selling drugs and at that time it was you know Sort of around when Tony Soprano and Walter White and mm-hmm. Vic Mackey and all those great, you know, antiheroes were were being told, but it wasn't. Women had not yet gone there. Flawed women, and it really wasn't until people uh, didn't want to see that. No one wants it. It was yeah. until like Weeds, Nurse Jackie, right. uh, Orange. You know, um, it was. It was, and they were all because of. Vic Mackey, Tony Soprano, you know, when you were able to have really flawed, damaged characters, and all, it just slowly but surely, audiences started coming around to that. So by mm-hmm. the time I did Jessica, audiences, I, I had hoped, and fortunately they were, ready for a character like that. I, I don't think I could have done that. In fact, I tried with Red Widow, and yeah. it just... And God forbid a, that this female character should be a mother. If your character back then was a mother...
1: Who wasn't you, perfect.
2: Uh, forget yeah. it. You know, if she wasn't putting her children like every moment, then, you know, and like parents are flawed, mothers are flawed. This yeah. woman, she's made some bad choices. But God forbid you should do that. I, I like to think that now, uh, you know, yeah. I, yeah. a character I think,
1: could do I that. I think so.
2: Yeah.
1: So I, I was trying to figure out a way to help our audience um, truly understand, you know, the, the differences and the similarities between. Um, uh, Jessica Jones and uh, Bella Swan. And the only thing I could think of was to just do uh, the, the whole Team Edward, Team Jacob. And so we're gonna, we're gonna play a little game. We're gonna play, okay, this. Cool. We're gonna play this little game uh, that I like to call Team Bella or Team Jessica. <laughs> it's very simple rules, very simple rules. I, I give you um, a historical female character and then you just tell me, Team Bella. Team Jessica, simple. Okay. Simple. Here we go. I'm bad at history. This is gonna be great. Okay. Yeah. By the way, you can always feel free to say I don't know. Who no that idea, is. Who that is. no yeah. idea who that is. No idea who that is. Then we'll just edit it out. No
2: idea. <laughs> <know. laughs> and everyone will erase it from their minds. <laughs>
1: uh, okay. Marie Curie.
2: Hmm.
1: Team I'm gonna, Bella. Team I'm Jessica. gonna say Bella. Team Bella. What? Single-minded, directed. Oh, very good. Very good. Meghan Markle.
2: I'm going to say Bella again.
1: Interesting. I kind yeah. of want to, all right. Is mm-hmm, an or,
2: mm-hmm. organized. Okay, this one's tough.
1: This one's tough. Malala.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I guess Jessica.
1: Maybe. Just Jessica, shit it's kind of and... a superhero. Yeah, yeah that's kind true. Is, that's yeah. a good one. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg.
2: <laughs> you know, I have to say Bella again on that one. Because Jessica barrels into things and breaks faces, and Ruth just kind of went along, and, uh-huh. you know, put just, just took one step after another and fucking made it happen. And That's
1: good. So. That's a good one. I, I I agree with you on that one. Uh, okay, uh, Margaret Thatcher.
2: Bella, but the the, the less positive aspect. <laughs> yeah. That, <you> know? <laughs> yeah.
1: Everything shitty about Bella. <clears throat> uh, okay. Uh, all right. Here's one. Joan of Arc. Jessica. Jessica, But, yeah, you know, she's
2: so, so, like, kind of, in like, self...
1: Tough. Maybe... She's tough, but she's yeah. also a little kind of, okay. you know. And then, uh, last but not least, famous famous female uh, historical figure, Donald Trump.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Kilgrave, but not anywhere near, <laughs> near as funny or delightful. <laughs> or yeah. handsome. Uh, he's just, or like, he got, he's on the editing orange. room floor, man. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know what? We don't uh, want to watch that him. Guy. Um, so... You're a hardcore feminist. You call yourself a hardcore feminist. You're very, very open about that. Sure. Um, I'm curious, what, what does feminism mean to you? What do, what do you... How do you define feminism? Uh,
2: for me, it's about... Uh, for me, it's about being equal. I mean, it's really simple as that. And the discovery that we weren't That we're second-class citizens Mm -hmm. uh, was devastating to me, and all I—the only thing I don't believe that we're superior. I don't believe that we are entitled to anything that anyone else isn't. I, but we—we need to be equal, and the fact that we're not is just so, Jesus Christ, what world are we in? But it's you know you're constantly being reminded of um, that lack of Mm. equality, sort of at every front, particularly with this president. So that's, that's It's not that radical. Yeah. Like just pay is the same. Yeah. You know, respect our boundaries in the same way you respect dudes, and yeah, it's. You know. Yeah. It shouldn't be. It, I don't think it's radical. It's
1: not a big ask. It's really not a big <laughs> ask. You know. How much um, of your creative work is um, driven by? this need to make sure that what you're just saying right now, this is not a big deal. All we're asking for is equality, equal pay, equal opportunity. It's not a lot. How much of your creative work um, is uh, propelled by that very simple notion that seems to not be getting through to people?
2: Um, Not directly fueled, but... You know, I, one thing I, I realized when I was on doing the little Twilight uh, tour, and I would there would be these you know uh, uh, autograph signing line or something like that, mm-hmm. right? Which is like a writer. Do you know what I do? <laughs>
3: uh,
2: but these um, young girls would come up just you know they're they're twelve, thirteen, fourteen. They're utterly impressionable. They're, they are unformed and they are being formed right now, as I was at their age, by whatever was happening in the media and around me and my family and parents. And I I became wildly aware of that and, but after the first movie because I wasn't paying attention to it in the first movie. All I knew was I needed a character who was proactive and you know, sort of just trying to bring some strength mm-hmm. to her. And when I started meeting these young, fans, I was like, holy shit, did, what, did I, it, what message did I put out there? What did <laughs> yeah. I do? You know, does that... Suddenly the responsibility
1: is like huge. You can feel it, yeah. You can
2: feel it, and, and it was terrifying. And so from that moment on, I became very conscious. I mean, still, obviously, the, the, the story and the characters are, are what's driving any story, but I've become more and more conscious over the years of what are people seeing? And I think that's something that we as, mm. as writers don't always pay attention to. You know, we don't realize that people are going to see this. You know, we're, we're so in our own little worlds and it's between us and the page <laughs> or us and the actor. Right. And you know, Twilight was such an amazing, amazing education to really understand.
1: The impact, the, the impact. global impact.
2: Global impact. Yeah. And that you know, there are little girls everywhere and boys and women watching this, but they're being shaped by this stuff. Mm. And, um, do you feel that
1: burden, like even now? Do you? Yes, do you absolutely,
2: sense it? absolutely. You know, in, in everything, right now, in this moment, anything that's—I'm uh, always like, super conscious of, mm-hmm. of that. And uh, I wish I was a much more uh, articulate, well-read feminist uh, like my sister-in-law, <laughs> Mimi, but uh, who was the first one who helped me get into Breaking Dawn. Uh, so I just kind of blunder through and, and try to be conscious of it.
1: Mm-hmm. Of course now we're living in the post Me Too era. Is that is that how we refer to I it now? Know. I'm I'm like my sister in law on the phone, right? <laughs> yeah, that's maybe. Um, and I just wonder, you know, there's so many conversations obviously now that have that have belatedly come from um, this sort of new moment, but I'm curious whether you personally in the writer's room, in the studio, um, you know, on the set. Like, do you notice a perceptible shift in the way that this business is being run now? Or is it just kind of business as usual and people well, it are is a little for bit me. more careful?
2: I mean, it's business as usual yeah. for me. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, I've always-
1: You're in the hashtag me already. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's, yeah. I love yeah. that. Yes, that's exactly right. I'm. Gonna, can I coin that? Yeah, we'll
1: write that down. Okay.
2: Um, <laughs> It's, it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting to watch the industry be kind of buffeted about and and trying to find their way into this. Uh, um, It's been an extraordinary experience as, uh, because there's a lot of, uh, I needed to be woke as Mm. well, because I'm of the generation we had spent our careers saying, we just have to figure out how to bob and weave.
1: Play the game. Just, just uh-huh. get to the next
2: job. Yeah, and you know it was always like, oh, that's just how it is. And when these incredibly brave women came forward, it was like, wake up, lady. That experience that you had back in, you know, when you were an assistant at wherever, that was not good. That was a, a, a harassment. Mm-hmm. And at the time, you just go, you know, he's the boss and whatever. We just. <laughs> Right.
1: Yeah, just get the hands off you and to move get to forward the next job and to move yeah. up just take it with a grin and move yeah. on yeah so
2: in in retrospect it was uh it was interesting I had you know, myself and my my friends we would be talking and you know one would tell me a story I've known like some of my best friends I've known for twenty five years never heard that story and she'd say this experience of hers and she just had never even raised it because. It's it's the way it is and I was having those stories of my own of like I never even talked about this was this the way it is Mm. So it was re-traumatizing For all of us, you know, and uh, I've had actual moments of PTSD of, you know, taking a shower and suddenly I'd be in a different place and I never noticed I never had that before, you know, or at least not that I was able to uh, realize and it was a very it got retraumatized when Kavanaugh, the whole Kavanaugh hearings as well. Um, but it was, uh, it was really important. And every conversation I had with friends were like, oh my god, I had no idea. Uh, you know, I've been doing this for this long and excusing that and saying, hey, it's just the way it is. You know?
1: So then, maybe what's changed is less um, anything about the way that businesses run in this town, and more a sort of consensus about hmm. what is and what is not okay that in other words that we by by bringing this out into the open by being comfortable sharing stories things that you were saying you've known these people for years and this happened to them many years ago they never even brought it up you yourself have had experiences that probably at the time you never i mean you probably thought it was shitty but you never went any further than that and now that there is this sort of freedom to say that shit won't stand anymore, right? I mean, it, it, that seems enough. I would big say
2: freedom is, we're still a ways off from freedom. Mm-hmm. It's still, you know, it, it's still terrifying. What was so, so interesting was uh, I, a friend of mine who's a journalist called to ask me, did I have any stories? And of course, you know, which one? Uh, but I, and she was, was for a Variety, I think it was, or Hollywood Reporter, I don't know and um so I told a story uh of um the experience i'd had. It wasn't naming names it had Did no you feel need to do
1: comfortable that. sharing that story or?
2: sure yeah um, it was right when i was a, i was an assistant I was working for uh bonnie door uh who is a mentor and was and um there was a what we were all at at- a studio I won't name that one but it, well, it's got, actually, all I have to do is look at Bonnie Dorn, and you know it's Orion, okay? Right. So I'm an assistant at Orion, and um, one of the executives of Orion was uh, a very handsy and fun guy.
0: That guy. You
2: know? Yeah. And he wasn't, like, I enjoyed him to some degree, he was a fun guy, but it was very handsy. And at one point, his assistant, uh, who was a friend, we were all in the same hall, came to me and she said, "I am going. I'm like, suing him for sexual harassment." And I was like, "There's a, a name to someone's doing that," and I didn't. <laughs> That's a thing. She, That's a thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. And uh, she asked if I would testify on her behalf because I had obviously, you know, had could totally testify yeah. on her behalf. Uh, although we probably had different experiences, but. I didn't know what to do. So I went to Bonnie and I told her the story. And she said, absolutely do whatever feels right to you, but you might not be able to work again. And she was absolutely telling the truth. And not she would fire me obviously, but um, that it might hurt my career. So because I was just starting out and I took her advice. Mm. And I didn't testify. And that woman never that I know of ever worked in this town again. Mm. I've carried that shame and that guilt for 20 years, 25 years of really uh I I betrayed a sister. But I was an assistant and Bonnie was absolutely right, it would have fucked my career. I would not be here. I'd have done something else. And that was what it was then. It was absolutely, yeah. that was the way it was then. And so you know, people wonder why, why women don't come forward. That's why. It will absolutely end their career. Yeah. Um, so I was telling that story to my friend and it was in the one of many stories in Hollywood Reporter. And uh, I, after I hung up with her, I was shaking. Because it was going to be published, it was going to be out there. I didn't even name, I didn't say Orion, I didn't even say the guy's name. I said nothing. But I was, it was, and it was the teeniest little story compared mm-hmm. to what these other women are coming forward with. And I could, at that moment, really experience, the, uh, like my awe of these women, their courage was overwhelming. That it took this much for me to say, like literally, my article is that big so um
1: and yet it still caused you so much anxiety so much. 20 years later when nobody is firing you from anything right well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i'm the same way i just gotta like just in case you, you never know yeah. Right, right, yeah um so it was um it was a uh, interesting
0: yeah
1: i wonder if the answer is that we just need more women behind the camera that we need more women in the studio that we need more women executives that i mean obviously you know we for generations we've had very strong women in front of the camera for generations we've had incredible strong women writing the words we've had a slew of women directors and producers but then when you start talking about studio execs people who run studios suddenly the percentages start to come down and let's face it they're the ones who decide what gets made and what doesn't get made and this conversation that i'm sure you had so many times in your life and i've had this i've had similar conversations with people with female creatives in 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 hollywood who have had who tell me this all the time that you know you pitch a story and the heart of the story is this Strong, powerful women, and what does the exec say?
2: Is she likable?
1: Is she likable? Pretty, is she? Yeah. Will anyone in China watch it? <laughs> you know, like, but, but I mean, can she carry a tent pole, though? Uh, you know, I want I like think, six movies. Yeah. I don't know if that's the case.
2: I hope that's changing, but, but I would actually disagree with you on the behind the camera uh, directors. Female directors are still what 11 percent of writers yeah. of a director in tv and i think even much smaller when it comes to features and i think in the writers guild we're about 28 uh, percent you know so it's still and if you look at uh, all the work gina davis has done with you yeah. know women in media yep. and you know the stats of re- women who are actually carrying movies it's pretty much all the way around it's yeah. again just make it equal.: Just This, by the equal. way, is a
1: good time to mention that every single episode of season two of Jessica Jones was directed by a woman, so well yes, done. It was. Um, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so we hear this refrain constantly from studios, from execs about, you know, what female-led films can and cannot do. I'm going to read something to you here. This is actual math. From 2014 to 2017, female-led films outperformed male-led equivalents at every single budget level.
3: Wow.
1: Okay? So uh, the combined uh, total for those years, $1.26 billion for female-led films, $1.04 billion for male-led films. So that's about a $224 million difference. Cool. Cool. So wow. why are we still talking about this? Why are we still talking about whether, you know, people will like the female protagonist or whether it'll do well in the foreign market? I mean, we've already answered that question. We have the information. Where is this coming from? Is it just the fact that once you start getting to the highest echelons of those decision makers, of mm-hmm. those gatekeepers, they're all just white men?
2: Well, yes and no. I mean, and but they're all white men trying to appease their stockholders. They're all, you know, trying to, it's all about money and what makes money. And in the past, what's been making money is movies for 13-year-old boys. That started to change. I mean, I think, I, I don't know if Twilight was the forerunner on that, but it certainly was in that. Had a big part to do, in, it, to do yeah. it, Where suddenly it was like, wow, if you write, if you if you make a movie that women and girls want to see, they will see it. 10 times. They will buy the DVD. <laughs> they will yes, buy the right. online, You know, I mean, yeah. and it was kind of like, oh, wow, I guess there is an audience. Here. There's always been an audience, but there was nothing for them to see and nothing for them to yeah. rally around. And, you know, then after that was the Hunger Games and, and uh, you yeah. know, all from there on. And I think that's, it's, and it's at the same time, 13 year old boys started staying home and, and being on their video games. So I think that's been shifting uh, a lot. I hope, I think.
1: I hope so. Uh, but
2: I remember like being uh being in a car with a, a producer down at the Austin Film Festival we we're talking about female led movies. And this was uh, a number of years ago and he was like you just you know, women can't open a movie. I'm like really, that's interesting And he's like yeah, they just can't. I mean, you know, look at look at Catwoman and Electra. They they tank. I'm like <laughs> Those were bad were movies. movies. They
1: were like, shitty movies. Yeah, yeah. Like, there's no way name, around that.
2: Name yeah. the, 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 the billions male right. shitty movies. They tanked too, but you know because there's so few of them, you, the two that were made right. tanked. So it's like, well, you know, it's like when you, you know, you work with a mm-hmm. female writer. Well, I, w- I worked with one once, and that didn't work out. <laughs> I get that a lot. If
1: only I could think of a male-led movie that tanked. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh,
2: but I think I, I feel like that's shifting yeah. more. I uh, hope so. At least hope in the so. moment.
1: I hope so. I, I want to see more women running studios. I yeah. think that's when we suddenly start to see. a a real shift um happening because again you're absolutely right the talent is there behind the camera in front of the camera that's been there for a very very long time yeah but eventually the higher you get eventually the person who holds the purse strings ironically (laughs) tends to be a man and tends to be mostly uh, a white man which brings us to politics we haven't been talking about politics that much
2: we have been talking about politics all of this is politics
1: all of this is politics, absolutely um, okay, we're in a very awful place. awful is I think the best yeah. way that i can I can put it um, you know, we were talking about earlier about what feminism means to you and and the way in which the very word itself has undergone this transformation um we are living in a world in which 53% of white women voted for a pussy grabber. That's something that we should all probably figure out how to tackle. I, I don't know. As a white woman, maybe you have an opinion on it. Do you have any way to explain this other than just rank racism? I honestly don't know what to say. I, I don't know I what mean, to
2: say. I had my awakening into feminism. I, I get it. Because like, my mother was a feminist. And so by the time I was a young woman, I believed that I could be president. She'd won the battle. She'd won it. That was it. So I had all, you know, feminism was, was an old concept. And I was an idiot. I just, you know, I didn't know anything. And it, I, you know, even said, I'm a chauvinist. I I'm a, I was really stupid. Uh, but I went to college and, and actually did a term out in, in London. And I was living, uh, staying with a feminist playwright. I'm just this is in the background, you know. I'm reading her work. I'm seeing some stuff, and, and so I'm sort of subtly being influenced a little bit. And then I go to Knightsbridge, and I'm a young woman, and I, I go into this this uh, cafe to order breakfast. I'm at the counter, and these guys come up from behind me. They seem to be drunk already, uh, and it's like 10 in the morning, <laughs> and they're flirting. I think. And I do what I always do, is I try to smile, and make nice, and like mm-hmm. bob and weave, yeah. you know? And that was the wrong fact, because that just encouraged them, as it often does. And I tried to continue ordering my breakfast, and then one of them came up behind me, and he put his chin on my shoulder.
3: Ugh.
2: And it wasn't, a, I've had guys do much worse than that, <laughs> but it was there just something about the timing, and where I had been, and the information that was in my head, that everything, Exploded. It was like a supernova. Just, just, poof. and I felt like suddenly I was connected to every woman in the history of the world. I, it just kind of went back. It was like mm. that sort of explosion <laughs> of like, oh, I'm a second class citizen. Mm. He feels that I, he is entitled to do that. He, I am there for him to put uh, a chin rest for him. And it was I, I began to cry, I was so angry. And then I was angry that my, I, like, all I could do was cry. And I realized at that point that no wonder I was denying that, that the movement, we weren't there yet. No wonder, because it is so horrible to feel that. It's a horrible feeling yeah. to feel less than, yeah. l- not worth as much to feel like an object. It was so horrible. And I understand why any woman would not want to feel that, but it's the truth. That is the truth. So these are just women who, who haven't, who can't feel that, who, who don't mm-hmm. want to, and I understand why they don't want to. Th- these are women who are so aggressively not wanting to feel it that they're putting that fuckhead in the, in the White <laughs> House, but yeah.
1: you know. What do we do? How do we reach them? What, how, how do we break through that shell? I don't Can know. Can we?
2: I think, I think what we do, uh, you know, telling stories uh, about women expanding their, their experience, having bringing them into other people's experiences. I mean, that's what we can do. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could run for president tomorrow. I'd vote for you.
1: I wasn't born here, so I can't <laughs> oh, really do that. Yeah, governor. Yeah. I don't know.
2: Anyway, uh, but
1: uh, but I think I love this. I love the idea of like a brown Iranian Muslim guy running for <laughs> president. That that seems like a total winner. I like that. Yeah, let's do that.
2: Vote for you. Let's that's do a that. heartbeat. But I mean, I think that's what we as storytellers can do, yeah. and that's that is the importance of storytelling is to bring people into, to have them experience how other people live. And hopefully that will be a reflection and they'll they'll feel something Mm -hmm. themselves.
1: Okay, so Melissa, as you know, uh, we like to end our episodes uh, with what we call the five questions, so here we go. Question number one, what's your favorite book?
2: There are too many. I can't name one, but I can say anything by Margaret Atwood. Oh yeah? Anything by Alice Hoffman. Anything by Jane Austen. Anything by Barbara Kingsolver or John Irving. Those are good. I mean.
1: Good. What's your favorite John Irving book?
2: Maybe Hotel New Hampshire.
1: That's a good one. Yeah. Prayer for Owen Meany. Yeah, that's a type. I'm that's, a very spiritual tight. guy, you know. What oh, it's such a wonderful, yeah. yeah, that's a type. Um, by awesome. the way, we, weirdly enough, talked about Alice Hoffman just last night. Did you? Uh, yeah, and uh, I, I quoted one of my favorite lines from her, which is, every fairy tale has a bloody lining Every fairy tale has teeth and claws. Oh my god. Mm. She's so fucking awesome. I love it, I know, it's amazing. Uh,
2: I've
1: I've loved her for
2: decades and the fact that I now get to adapt one of her novels is just like mind blowing.
1: Okay, number Uh, two. What's your writing process?
2: I get up, work out, sometimes work out. Make my way to the uh, computer around 10 or 11, 11. And I have to trick myself to write into the writing. Because, you know, the, you're, the minute you sit down on the computer, the demons are all there. <laughs> yeah. You're a hack, you're going to fail, you have no stories to tell. So you go in and I trick them. And I, I start by, you know, answering e- emails and, like, maybe going and doing a little online window shopping and such. But the first thing I do, though, is I open the document. So it's on my computer. And then I go do the window shopping and such like that and then it's like and then I just turn the document on I just start writing and I'm like oh and now I'm just like in it you know and it just its a very long process to actually get in it <laughs> and I you know, love how
1: you have to sneak your way I into have to it? I just sneak my like, way into it. No one's looking. No no one one's do some looking. writing now.
2: It's true and you know you're not supposed to sit for 4 hours at a time you're supposed to like get up and I'm afraid to get up and, you know, I, even to go to the bathroom or get lunch or whatever because I'm, if I get up, I have to start the process all it. over yeah. again
1: mm-hmm.
2: and get past the demons and go through the whole thing. So <laughs> uh, that works for me. I
1: love it. Number three, if you weren't a writer, what would you be?
2: Choreographer. That would be my dream mm-hmm. job, of course. Um, local politician.
1: Local? Like, yeah. that, like city council? Councilman, something like
2: that. Wow. Yeah, councilman, yeah. Something like that. Um, I would, have, uh, I would have, I think, gone into law if I had uh, a reading dis- disability. Mm. And so I could never have gone through law school if, in that way. Uh, but I've always been very drawn to... Uh, I had the experience of being uh, on the board of the directors at the Writers Guild. I had the experience of right. being president of student council at my college. And I had the experience of, of affecting change. And it is addictive. When you actually can, there's a person you helped, that sense of power mm. is really uh, a rush. I, l- it, I like it, I like affecting change. And there's so much, I'm perfectionist, so much that's like annoys me.
1: <laughs> that's <amazing.
2: laughs> I would like to change things. By
1: the way, you were my strike captain, you don't even know what? that. What? <laughs> you don't even know that. There you go. Uh, what's the worst writing advice that you've ever been given?
2: Not really, it's not really advice as much as an, an attitude. Mm. Um, and the, the the sort of ingrained thought was the work, it's all about the work, the work is enough. And so basically you can be whoever you are, but whatever what ends up on the page is what matters. It isn't, it's so much about being someone people want to work with and, and collaboration. Right. I mean, in our business, you know, if you don't have that, then go be a novelist or you know something else. But it's uh, I, that took me a long time to figure mm. out. I was just like, oh, you know, your ideas suck. These are better. And ultimately, it doesn't matter. I'm telling you, your ideas suck because what I put on the page, is, no. Hmm. Like, don't be someone who tells someone their ideas suck, you know? That I, it, it, oddly, that took me a really long time, yeah. long time to figure out, which is sad. But.
1: And then, finally, what is the best advice that you can give to a writer who's just starting or uh, an emerging writer?
2: Hmm. Uh, it's all about tenacity. If you, you know, this is a tough business. And, you know, you get your, kick, your teeth kicked in on any mm. given moment and you're lying there bleeding on the floor and you have to pick yourself up. And the difference between someone who's, who's made it, who's working and making money at it and being able to express themselves and the person who leaves the industry is exactly that. Mm. Can you pick yourself up? And my solution for that is delusional optimism. <laughs> <laughs> you're on the floor bleeding and you just tell yourself it's going to be better tomorrow it won't it really won't and it probably won't be the next day either but eventually it's going to be better and if you can just conf- I know it's a very sort of you know the sun will come up tomorrow uh, you know, <laughs> but you have to kind of that's where it is you can't you know wallow as long as you want but eventually pick yourself the hell up keep going and then you know never ends
1: and here we are now at the end of your journey, although that seems weird, right? At the end of your journey. Oh, what's in this thing? I wanted to tell you you're dying tomorrow. Oh, <laughs> no. Jesus. Uh, no, at the present of your journey, um, you have your own production company, Tall Girls. And that's the whole point, right? The whole point is to focus your time, your energy, your resources on making sure that stories um, about women uh, about empowered women about women who break th- the stereotypes that we're so familiar with women who can be whatever they want to be um, on screen um, whether it's film or television that that there is a place for that Te- that's, that's tell actually us about this.
2: that's actually my secondary goal my first goal is is utterly narcissistic tell good stories I want to tell good stories I want people to
1: That's what a writer says. I want
2: to say what my experience is. I want people to have to listen to what my story is. (laughs) And my story is everyone's story.
1: Yeah, good. Yeah. Well, I have been following your story for a long time, and I can't wait to just keep following it. I'm so, so glad that I got a chance to talk to you. Melissa Rosenberg, everybody. (laughs) Thank you, thank you, thank you to my guest, Melissa Rosenberg. If you want to follow her, her socials are at tallgirlmel. Girl M-E-L. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Rough Draft. We'll see you next time. Rough Draft is a topic original series hosted by me, Reza Aslan. Executive produced by Reza Aslan, David Andrioni, Alfredo De Villa, and Safa Samizadeh Yazd. Executive producers for Topic are Ryan Chanitry, Anna Holmes, and Gina Constantinakos with production aid from Russell Sperberg. Our music and theme is by Jacob Snyder, sound by Sean Oakley, editing and mixing by Will Stanton with additional editing by Blake V. You can follow Rough Draft on Twitter at Rough Draft Reza, on Facebook at Rough Draft with Reza Aslan, or you can email us at Podcast at topic.com. You can also follow me, Reza Aslan, at Reza Aslan. For transcripts and a list of full credits, go to topic.com/rdpodcast. If you love this interview, be sure to check out our TV show, as well as Topic's original series and exclusive programming from around the world. Try it for free on the Apple TV app, already on your favorite devices. You can watch Topic at home or on the go with offline viewing and you can also share your subscription between up to 6 family members with family sharing. That's what I do. Go to apple.co slash topic. That's apple.co slash topic to start your seven-day free trial now. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Rough Draft.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer.